Good morning. This morning our Old Testament reading will be Psalm 12, and our New Testament reading is going to be 1 Timothy chapter 3. Psalm chapter 12, and I'm reading from the ESV. The faithful have vanished to the choir master, according to the Shemintheth, I might pronounce that wrong, a Psalm of David. Save, O Lord, for the godly one is gone, for the faithful have vanished from among the children of man. Everyone utters lies to his neighbor with flattering lips and a double heart they speak. May the Lord cut off all flattering lips, the tongue that makes great boasts. For those who say, with our tongue we will prevail, our lips are with us, who is our master over us. Because the poor are plundered, because the needy groan, I will now arise, says the Lord. I will place him in the safety for which he longs. The words of the Lord are pure words, like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. You, O Lord, will keep them. You will guard us from this generation forever. On every side the wicked prowl, as vileness is exalted among the children of man. And our New Testament reading is 1 Timothy chapter 3. Qualifications for overseers. This saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to be the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace and to a snare of the devil. Qualifications for Deacons Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience, and let them also be tested first. And let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves, and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. The Mystery of Godliness I hope to come to you soon by writing these things to you so that, if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for this word, for what it stands for. I thank you that this word is sharper than any two-edged sword, Lord, that it may pierce our hearts and our souls, Lord, that we may live how you would want us to live. 
Lord, I thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, who your word tells us about, who died a death he didn't have to die, wasn't forced to, but he went willingly to the cross to suffer our sins. And you have loved us so much, Lord, that you have sent your only son, that we may have eternal life with you, Lord. That sacrifice is a debt we can never repay, and it's a sacrifice that we should never forget. Lord, I thank you for the grace that you provide. Thank you for your Holy Spirit, Lord. And I pray, Lord, that today the Holy Spirit would fill this church and that it would fill Pastor Greg as he preaches this morning. That you would hide him behind the cross, Lord. And that way people just see you and your word and your word alone. For that is where the power of salvation comes. It's from you, not from us. So, Lord, if there be one here today that is lost, I pray today will be the day that they will... Be convicted by the Holy Spirit, drawn to you, and they may accept you as Savior and Lord. For we know, Lord, it's worth it all just for one soul to be saved. So we pray earnestly for that, Lord. I pray that you would soften our hearts, that we may hear your word and apply it to our lives and live lives as you would have us to live. Thank you, Lord, for always hearing our prayers. Thank you for this church, Lord. Bless us, Lord, in this new year. And help us to live in accordance to your word. It's in Christ's holy name I pray these things. Amen. Let's stand and sing one more together. What a day that will be. There is
see you this morning. Praise God that he gave us the ability, the strength to be able to come out and gather together this way. Isn't it marvelous? The Lord is so good to us. He's so faithful. I want to say uh, just uh, how much it means to me to be able to stand up here and uh, open up the Bible and have uh, men and women and young people who are interested to hear the scriptures and We certainly pray that you will not leave disappointed today that you didn't hear God's word. So we'll do our best to make sure that we hit that mark. Uh, Thank you so much for our our singers this morning. Just just a marvelous job. So thankful for Amanda and Artie and all the strange family. They're just marvelous uh, folks and what a blessing. Well, let's pray together. Now, Lord, we pray that you will help us to preach and help us to preach for your glory. We ask that you would forgive our sins and that you would look upon us with mercy and with grace and help us. Lord, uh, I am under no illusions that if your spirit does not move, then there will be nothing that comes of this. So we pray that you would... Send the Holy Spirit to help me preach and to help us hear and to bring forth the kind of response that would bring glory and honor to Christ. Thank you so much, Lord, for this wonderful group of people that you've brought together today. Bless us now. We are gathered in your presence and we want to hear from you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I guess all of us know what it's like to have a disappointing week. You know, we, uh, we live in a fallen world, and that means because the world is fallen that there are going to be disappointments that come our way. And, and I have to say, uh, this has been a disappointing week for me. It has nothing to do with what is going on here. I'm so thankful to God for how He is rebuilding His church here at Mill Springs. You know, we had... Um, I believe zero baptisms in 2023. And in January of 24, we've already had two. So that is a cause for great rejoicing, is it not? We, yes. Praise the Lord. We, we have a young man who is leading our students who is on fire. For God, I'm so grateful for Connor. And I, I just wonder, is it me or does it sound like the singing is amping up? It's, it's, it's really a, a joyful thing to hear for me as a pastor. Uh, our 11 a.m. Bible study on Wednesdays is back. And I'm telling you, we're having numbers in that Wednesday morning Bible study I hadn't seen before. 
So I'm just so thankful. Donna's playing the piano for us, and we're, we're singing some great old songs together. And uh, so just want to invite you to come and be a part of that if you're free at 11 a.m. We really appreciate that Bible study in the wintertime, you know, when it gets dark at 5 and 6 o'clock. Uh, it's hard to drive at nights for some of us. And so we're at 11 a.m. on Wednesday. We're going through the book of Acts. We'd love to have you join us if you're free. Uh, we go from one, for one hour exactly from 11 to noon, and then we're done. And then, then there are folks that go out and eat together. So, hey, there you go. Brothers and sisters, we're just getting started. Do you feel it? We're just getting started with, with what we believe that the Lord is going to do for us. I mean, we're at His mercy. We need His help. We need His power. We need His, His wisdom as we move forward. We've got a vacation Bible school that we're planning for this year. So that's coming back, and we're really excited about that as well. Uh, I mean, what, what can we say but to Him who is able to do above and beyond all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us, to Him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. And this, is, this is all praise to Him. My disappointment had to do with a well-known and much-loved, highly respected pastor and Bible teacher and some seriously bad advice that he gave a grandmother publicly. And the bad advice was enough to go national. Uh, I saw it actually reported on by Fox News. It wasn't just the bad advice that he gave. It was especially his response when some godly believers reached out to him and expressed legitimate concern at the advice that he gave this particular grandmother. Uh, it was at that point that I went from being disappointed uh, to dismayed. And I, I can't even bring myself to tell you his name. It's that hurtful for me personally. I have three times drove to Cleveland, Ohio to a pastor's conference that he led. And uh, that's a long drive from here. And I did it uh, three, uh, three times uh, with such respect for him. You said, well, then why are you even bringing it up? Well, I'm bringing it up because it is being discussed nationally. Some of you maybe have heard it. If you've not, you probably will. I bring it up because it's already being used to aid and abet the enemies of the gospel. And I bring it up because of my text. As we return today to our verse-by-verse -verse study of 1 Corinthians. You know, uh, you've heard me say this before, but every time one makes a commitment to go, we're going to go verse-by-verse -verse through this book or this letter or this chapter or this section of the Bible, it, it never ceases to amaze me how it seems to be at just the right time. And when you make this commitment, then when you preach on it, somebody can't say, ah, see, this is, you're just doing this. This is your hobby horse. No, it's the next passage up. And isn't it remarkable how it fits what's going on around us? So uh, let's hear the text now as we come back to 1 Corinthians. We're at 1 Corinthians chapter 2. 
And we're going to look at verses 1 through 5. 1 Corinthians 2, 1 through 5. I may mention, speak more to this matter I'm referring to later. Uh, We'll see. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 1. When I came to you, brothers and sisters, announcing the mystery of God to you, some of the manuscripts read testimony of God, I did not come with brilliance of speech or wisdom. I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I came to you in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling. My speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of wisdom, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not be based on human wisdom, but on God's power. My title this morning is Human Wisdom, the Disappointment of a Sandy Foundation. Well, since it's been a while since our last study in 1 Corinthians, I think it probably would be wise for us to try to ease our way back into this letter of the Apostle Paul's. I want us just to quickly remind ourselves of how the gospel first came to Corinth and then what the city was like when Paul arrived with the gospel there. So let's turn back to Acts chapter 18 for just a moment. Acts 18.1. And let's remember how the gospel came to Corinth. Acts chapter 18, verse 1. This is probably in the spring of A.D. 51, as we read these verses. Acts 18, 1. After this, he left Athens and went to Corinth, where he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had ordered all the Jews to leave Rome. Paul came to them, and since they were of the same occupation, tent makers by trade, he stayed with them and worked. He reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade both Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul devoted himself to preaching the word and testified to the Jews that Jesus is the Messiah. When they resisted and blasphemed, he shook out his clothes and told them, Your blood is on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on I will go to the Gentiles. So he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God whose house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, believed in the Lord along with his whole household. Many of the Corinthians, when they heard, believed and were baptized. The Lord said to Paul in a night vision, Don't be afraid, but keep on speaking and don't be silent, for I am with you, and no one will lay a hand on you to hurt you, because I have many people in this city. He stayed there a year and a half, teaching the word of God among them. And so goes Luke's record. Lowry reminds us that from a human point of view, Paul probably had reason to wonder if any saints would be found 
in Corinth. The ancient city had a reputation for vulgar materialism. In the earliest Greek literature, it was linked with immorality and wealth. When Plato referred to a prostitute, he used the expression Corinthian girl. Aristophanes coined the verb Corintharizomai to refer to fornication. And according to the Greek geographer and philosopher Strabo, much of the wealth and vice in Corinth centered around the temple of Aphrodite and its thousand temple prostitutes. For this reason, a proverb warned, not for every man is the voyage to Corinth. Now you may recall back when we originally began this series that we had this comparison that we made. Corinth was the New York City San Francisco and Las Vegas of the ancient world all rolled up into one. That gives you kind of an idea of what the city of Corinth was like. And unfortunately, as you read 1 Corinthians, you come to discover that the culture of Corinth had seeped into the church of Corinth. The church of Corinth had been infiltrated by its own culture. And so Paul is aiming at bringing repentance and bringing reform to the church in Corinth. He is aiming at a major course correction. Now let's look at chapter 2, verse 1, and I want us to note a couple of things this morning. How Paul says he brought the gospel to Corinth in verses 1 to 4. And then why he brought it this way in verse 5. So let's look at these first four verses together and how Paul brought the gospel to Corinth. When I came to you, brothers and sisters, now the Greek word there, autophoi, includes both males and females in the church. He's speaking to the entire Corinthian church, not just to the males. When I came to you, brothers and sisters, announcing the mystery of God to you, as I said earlier, some of the ancient manuscripts read testimony, if, it's, if, if we're going with mystery, what Paul means here is a message that God hadn't previously revealed. So I came to you announcing this mystery of God, this testimony of God. And when I did, I did not come with brilliance of speech or wisdom. Now, drop down to the first part of verse 4. My speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of wisdom. You see that? So you'll notice that he's, he's, he's emphasizing that he did not come trying to pers- uh, impress them with his speech and his delivery. But he was going beyond those kinds of surface things. And the reason he's saying this is because in Corinth, these were the things that were celebrated by the Corinthian culture, and the Corinthian church had become enamored with it. They wanted rhetorical display. They wanted philosophical subtlety. They wanted polished speaking. They wanted refined Speaking, They wanted the kind of profound and erudite speaking that created shivers in their livers because it was so good. That's what they were looking for. And they wanted this kind of speaking not because 
Paul had taught them that, and certainly not because the gospel had taught them that. They wanted that because the culture had taught them that. That was what was esteemed. And so it was the Corinthian culture that was instructing the church. It was the Corinthian culture that was shaping the church. It was the Corinthian culture that was changing the Corinthian church. Not the other way around. Now hold on a minute, right? What did Jesus say? Jesus said, no one can serve two masters. Since he will either hate the one and love the other or despise the one and be devoted to the other. You you can't serve two different masters. You can't serve Christ and serve the surrounding culture. It's the same today. Times a thousand. I saw a video this week of a preacher in a Christian church with a giant cross on the wall walk to the pulpit and say these words, and I'm quoting verbatim. My name is Pastor L. Dowd. And I use pronouns like she or they. And I'm an author, activist, and ordained minister, and also married to Pastor Adam. I'm also bisexual. Now, I want to ask you something. Is that the voice of Scripture? Or is that the voice of culture? You see, brothers and sisters, this is how relevant 1 Corinthians is. Because they were wrestling with the same kind of tension, the pull from their culture for the Corinthian church to conform to the culture. And we're, we're in the same boat. And you say, well, you're picking some extreme example. No, hey, no. I'm picking an example from an evangelical church. This is no longer so extreme. It just goes to show how captivated by cultural influences we've become and how under pressure the church is to pretend things that aren't true. I want to recommend a book to you. I don't want to just curse the darkness. We want to... We want to grow in understanding how do we respond to these sorts of things. This book was published last fall. I think we have the cover that we can show you on screen. I would encourage you to maybe jot down the title or take a picture of it with your phone if you'd like. The Five Lies of Our Anti-Christian Age by Rosaria Butterfield speaks to the issue quite powerfully. On the back cover, listen to this little clip here. Modern culture is increasingly outspoken against a biblical understanding of what it means to be a woman. Even some Christians, swayed by the LGBTQ plus movement, have rejected God's word on issues of sexuality and gender in favor of popular opinion. In light of these pressures... 
It's more important than ever to help women see the truth about who God created them to be. So I I would just recommend maybe, you know, some of you moms, read this with your daughter. Because she's getting all kinds of mixed messaging. That's, that's, uh, and it's all centered upon attacking the femininity with which she was created as an image bearer of the living God. And so we, we have, we, we cannot stick our heads in the sand and pretend this is not happening. The culture is out to conquer. Christians, we have got to maintain our grip on who we are. And we've got to maintain our grip on what we're about as followers of Jesus Christ. We cannot be allowing the world to decide what we are. Because the world is in darkness. The world thinks that it sees things clearly. It thinks that it sees this as being a path to freedom and joy and satisfaction when in fact it is a dead end. That dead end that ends in hell itself. And so the church has got to stand in the middle of the road and wave arms. We can't link arms and walk with them. Just go over with me real quickly over to Matthew 5 and just remember this. Sometimes it just helps to put your eyes on the words themselves. Matthew chapter 5, remember what Jesus said about His followers. Matthew 5.13 Brothers and sisters, we've got to love people enough that we we will tell them the truth. And not be hateful and not be mean, but tell them the truth. And not be cowered by accusations of being mean and hateful and all this into silence. We can't do that. No. Listen, Matthew 5.13, the words of our Lord Jesus, You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt should lose its taste, how can it be made salty? It's it's no longer good for anything but to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city situated on a hill cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket, but rather on a lampstand, and it gives light for all who are in the house in the same way. Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. When Paul brought the gospel to Corinth, he deliberately laid aside the expectations and demands of Corinth. Because Corinth was godless. Corinth was in rebellion. Corinth was lost. Not unlike our culture. He deliberately put aside their expectations and demands for brilliance of speech and wisdom. In fact, now go back to verse 2. 1 Corinthians 2. 2. He says, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him 
crucified. We preach Christ. You remember what we read back in Acts 18, 18, 5 a moment ago? We read that Paul devoted himself to preaching the Word and testified to the Jews that Jesus is the Messiah. Notice, he did not preach his pronouns. He didn't preach his marital status. He didn't preach his sexuality. Nor did he preach any of the deceptions and delusions of his own day. His message was simply Jesus Christ and Him crucified. You think the cultural pressure was not immense for Him to preach a different message? See, we stand so far removed from crucifixion. We've never seen a crucifixion. We've seen it depicted in movies. But we've never seen the horrors and the degradation of crucifixion. The people in that day, in Paul's day, had... And it was the most repulsive, disgusting thing that one could even discuss. You didn't, you didn't discuss it in polite society. But crucifixion was at the heart of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He proclaimed Christ crucified. Do you think the pressure was not enormous on him to change his message? What if he had changed his message? What if he had wet his finger on his tongue and said, held it up in the air and said, okay, which way is the Corinthian wind blowing? I'm going to preach whatever my culture tells me they want to hear. Everybody would have been lost. The gospel would never have wound its way here. We've got... This is not negotiable. And I'll be run out of the pulpit before I will compromise on this. Paul brought the gospel to Corinth. He resolutely preached Christ. In verse 3, he says, I came to you in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling. And all oh, the Corinthians, the culture so embarrassed at that. You don't say things like that. I came to you in weakness and fear and much trembling. Oh, those aren't Corinthian values. But Paul owns them. He admits that having been beaten and jailed in Philippi and then driven out of Thessalonica and Berea and then ridiculed in Athens, by the time he got to Corinth with the gospel, he was physically worn and emotionally weary. Can you see him coming into Corinth? Not the least bit impressive to look at. Not attractive at all. This ugly little man who obviously had been the object of some abuse physically. I mean, look at him. And he had this manner of speaking and his manner of preaching. It matched the way he looked. But there was this about Paul. Verse 4, My speech and my preaching when I came to you with the gospel, 
My my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of wisdom, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power. The plain facts about the Lord Jesus Christ were driven home with incredible force by Spirit-powered conviction. When this little man, unattractive, simple words, when he began to preach Christ crucified, there was such power and conviction in what he was saying that proud hearts were humbled by the Spirit's work through the man. Not because of the man, but the Spirit of God working through the man. Sinners were converted to God from all ages and classes from all conditions and backgrounds, after every human means of reforming those folks had been in vain, sinners found lasting joy, they found peace and contentment and satisfaction, what had always escaped them before. And sinners were transformed, listen, they were transformed into completely different people. The drunk became sober, The thief became honest. The immoral became pure. The harsh became kind. The the fault-finding became encouraging. And the liar became truthful. In fact, look ahead over at chapter 6, verse 9. 6, 9. Paul asks the Corinthians, don't you know... That the unrighteous will not inherit God's kingdom. Don't be deceived. No sexually immoral people, idolaters, adulterers, or males who have sex with males. No thieves, greedy people, drunkards, verbally abusive people, or swindlers will inherit God's kingdom. And some of you used to be like this. Do you hear that? You used to be. This is what you were like. And then the gospel came. You see, Paul's preaching may not have been rhetorically brilliant. He didn't care. All he knew was that when he proclaimed Christ, souls were saved and lives were changed. And isn't that what matters? Back in the 19th century... A successful and influential British surgeon lived by the name of Astley Cooper, A-S-T-L-E-Y, Cooper. His dates were 1768 to 1841. Described as a dedicated anatomist and accomplished researcher and an inspiring teacher and skillful surgeon, his contributions to surgical science are used to this day. Sir Astley was once, uh, he visited Paris once, where he met France's chief of surgeons, who promptly asked him how many times he had performed a certain complex surgery. Cooper replied that he had performed the operation 13 times. Ah, but, Monsieur, I have done it 160 times. 
And then the Frenchman asked, after looking into the blank amazement of Sir Astley's face, How many times did you save the patient's life? I, said the Englishman, saved eleven out of the thirteen. How many times did you save the lives out of the 160? Oh, monsieur, replied the Frenchman, I lose them all. But the operation was very brilliant. See, Paul's preaching may not have been brilliant. But when he preached, souls were saved. Forget the eloquence. Her soul saved. That's how Paul brought the gospel to Corinth. Not with persuasive words of wisdom, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power. Now quickly, why? Why did Paul bring the gospel this way? We'll look at verse 5, our final verse. So that your faith might not be based on human wisdom but on God's power. Paul wanted the Corinthians' faith to rest on God's power to save them, not on Paul's power to convince them. Because another somebody might show up after Paul left and be even more convincing than Paul. And then what would become of their faith, you see? The Corinthians must not be, to quote Paul's words to the Ephesians, like little children tossed by the waves and blown around by every wind of teaching, by human cunning with cleverness in the techniques of deceit. That's exactly what's going on today. People sitting in evangelical churches listening to this Wind of teaching that's not coming from the Bible. And they're being blown all over the place. By human cunning with cleverness. In the techniques of deceit. The Corinthians needed a constant true north. And brothers and sisters, Mill Springs needs a constant true north, a fixed point. And God has given us that, not just Mill Springs, He's given every Christian that true north in the Scriptures that do not change. He's given us His Word, not the sandy foundation of human wisdom, but the solid rock foundation of God's power in the gospel of Christ crucified. A power that as Paul set forth the gospel truth, the Spirit would send forth the gospel light and eyes would be opened and hearts would come alive and another sinner would be saved. Brothers and sisters, human wisdom is a sandy foundation. And that sandy foundation will eventually disappoint. 
It'll even dismay. You know, uh, I was thinking about the the preacher that I I mentioned a moment ago. One of the trips that I I made to Cleveland to hear, and it was tremendous, tremendous conference. I'm going to tell you, it was at a time probably kept me in ministry. I was so discouraged by some stuff. I'll never forget one of the things that he said, and I, I had never heard it. It was not original to him, but I had never heard it. He said, the best of men are men at best. And I jotted that down. And I have repeated that over and over. The best of men are men at best. And he proved it. And my, my, one of my greatest fears is to do the same thing. I pray I can crawl across the finish line by God's grace, crawl across it faithful. And if God has to put me on my hands and knees and I'm, I'm literally crawling across the finish line, I just want to end faithful. Matthew Henry said, Few know the fear and trembling faithful ministers feel from a deep sense of their own weakness. They know how insufficient they are. And they are fearful for themselves. What are you saying, Greg? I'm saying this. Human wisdom, such a sandy foundation. Don't let cultural influences, don't let cultural pressures, don't let cultural obsessions and fads, don't let cultural demands lead you astray, Christian. You keep your finger firmly in the text of your Bible. And stand strong, because this is the solid rock foundation. Let's pray. Father, give us the wisdom. Give us the faith. Not to abandon your word in a time of tremendous deceit. Lord, help us to stand against the cultural tsunami and not be swept away as we see so many being swept away. Lord, I pray that you will use your word in the coming days in such a way that men and women and lost young people will hear the gospel savingly and will let go of the gods that they're worshiping And as the Thessalonians did, turn and serve the one true and living God. Thank you that Jesus is mighty to save. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen.